worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Welcome back to the show. This is Dan Ambinder, and I'm really amped to record today's show. And this is Amit Goyal, your friendly neighborhood cardiology fellows. We're back for another great case. And guys, if you're not driving, feel free to follow along with the episode schematic found on www.cardionerds.com. Compliments of Dr. Corrine Hamo. Also, stay tuned for a surprise segment at the end of each episode. Team, today we are honored to host the great Dr. Fatima Alkanazi, internal medicine resident at the Johns Hopkins Hospital, who will be calling about an instructive case of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, which is a really important clinical condition that clinically changes and ranges from asymptomatic to the extremes of heart failure and sudden cardiac death. Today, we're going to dive into the pathophysiology, definition, diagnosis, and acute and long-term management strategies. We will also take a crack at explaining the importance of dynamic left ventricular outflow obstructions. And I had the privilege of working with Fatima last year when we were on the general cardiology service. The one thing that really left a mark on me was that one day we were taking care of a patient who had decided to go towards hospice and palliation. Fatima came in and instead of pre-rounding with the patient, spent the morning with her doing her makeup and really dressing her up for success. And when we came in the room, we saw a transformative situation where the day before this woman was lying in bed and just did not look well to a magnificent princess. And that was something that really, really, really changed the way our team thought about what we were doing. So I'm really excited to have Fatima here with us today. Ah, Dan, I did not see that intro coming. It's it's so nice of you to remember that. I am so pumped to be on the show with you guys. Thank you so much for having me. Wow, Dan, that was such a special story. And I think it's going to make our discussion all the more meaningful today. And for our friends listening at home, if you have not heard our first episode on aortic stenosis, you may want to go back and listen as we dive deeper into the magical world of velocities and gradients, which will continue to be vital for today's discussion as we pivot from the fixed LVOT obstruction of aortic stenosis to the dynamic LVOT obstruction of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. As always, remember that this podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not reflect the opinions or policies of our employers, The case you're about to listen to is 100% HIPAA compliant. Some details were changed to protect privacy, but out of respect for the patients, the rest have been told exactly as it occurred. Hey, Cardio Nerds. I've got a great case that you may find very interesting. Bring it. Just crush some serious coffee. Cardio Nerds at your service. Fatima, I can't wait to hear it. Let's just dive right in. I'm having a blast in the cardiac ICU, and we're getting a patient from the ED with very interesting symptoms that I could use your help thinking through. She's a 65-year-old woman with no significant past medical history, but now presents with sudden-onset chest pain. Chest pain is our thing. You've come to the right place. Consider us in trees. (laughs) Carry on. Well, she tells us that she was in her usual state of health until two days ago when she developed URI symptoms. Over the last few hours, she developed progressive shortness of breath and ultimately had chest discomfort. She describes the chest pain as moderate in intensity that has been intermittent with radiation to the neck and arm and tingling over her left arm. In this setting, she decided to present to the emergency department. Fatima, I'm at the edge of my seat with both interest and concern. Now, as a cardiologist, I still find chest pain very challenging, primarily because it's both very common and can be a preamble to severe life-threatening consequences, a terrible combination. As a cardiologist, I most frequently see the cardiac etiologies, but I force myself to first go through the other non-cardiac must-not-miss diagnoses to avoid premature closure due to my inherent recency bias. Let's recall the 4 plus 2 plus 2 mnemonic for emergent causes of chest pain as described by Dr. Evelyn Song in the CP solvers, the 4 cardiac, 2 pulmonary, and 2 esophageal. Forcing myself to go backwards, the two esophageal causes are esophageal rupture and impaction, the two pulmonary causes are pulmonary embolism and pneumothorax, and finally, the four cardiac causes are acute coronary syndrome, aortic dissection, pericarditis plus or minus tamponade, and stress cardiomyopathy. Now, I am intrigued by the inflammatory prodome, these URI symptoms, but let's hear more. Of course, Ahmed. She happens to be a terrific historian. She takes no prescription medications and has no prior cardiac history. 
At baseline, she does not participate in any exercise regimen, but stays very active gardening and can haul dirt and mulch up to 60 pounds without any limitation. She denies any history of presyncope or syncope and has no history of palpitations or history of chest pain prior to this episode. Her father had an MI in his 50s, but there's no history of sudden or unexplained death in her family. She's a never smoker, drinks alcohol very rarely, and denies illicit drug use. Wow, now that's a great history, Fatima. I especially love your elaboration of her baseline functional status, which seems like more than I can probably do, because it really <laughs> highlights that the current presentation is a big change from before, which makes me even more concerned that something sinister is going on. So let's go through a physical exam to figure out what that may be. Happy to oblige. Her exam has had drastic fluctuations in the emergency room, which is why she's coming our way to the CCU. Initially, she was hypertensive to 173 over 83 millimeters of mercury, with a heart rate of 80 beats per minute. She was breathing comfortably on room air, and her O2 saturations were 95%. Cardiac exam was with a regular weight and rhythm, but she had a 4 out of 6 harsh holosystolic murmur, best heard at the apex. Her neck veins appeared flat. Her lung exam was clear to auscultation bilaterally. All of her extremities were warm and well-perfused. Her EKG showed diffuse, subtle SD changes, consistent with early repolarization pattern. Her chest x-ray was unrevealing. Interesting. Sounds like a pretty benign course so far. She is fairly hypertensive with a prominent murmur, but how does this end up landing her in the CCU? Here's where things get rather interesting. While she was in the ED, she developed another episode of chest pain, and suddenly her blood pressure went from systolic of 170 to 70, and she became hypoxic to 89% on 4 liters of oxygen. Whoa, that's a big change. Big change. In this setting, she began vomiting. Her blood pressure was rechecked on both arms and was consistently 70 bilaterally. Oddly, her blood pressure and oxygen saturations improved after a few minutes without any particular intervention. Subsequently, a point-of-care ultrasound in the ED showed severe mitral valve regurgitation in the peristertal long axis. Her EF appeared grossly normal, but given the severe MR and desaturations in the setting of chest pain, there was concern for a papillary rupture in the setting of a myocardial infarction. Oh man, I love it. There is a lot to unpack here. This is a very concerning and dynamic presentation. To summarize, we have this 65-year-old, presumably wonderful woman, with no significant past medical history who presents with acute intermittent chest pain and dyspnea following a recent upper respiratory tract illness. She has a really angry sounding murmur by what you're saying and no evidence of volume overload, as well as a very labile blood pressure with transient hypotension and hypoxia. This is really fascinating. As Ahmed pointed out, chest pain in the emergency department comes with a very important differential. Chest pain plus severe mitral regurgitation makes me always think about ischemic mitral regurgitation or potentially papillary rupture leading to acute mitral regurgitation, with the caveat being that these conditions don't actually have a murmur at times because of rapid pressure equalization. However, these conditions are usually accompanied by profound and sustained cardiopulmonary compromise. This presentation does not really smell like either of these because of how transient her hemodynamics are and the fact that her respiratory status improved drastically without any specific intervention. I think that before we jump to conclusions, we have to start with a formal echo to better assess what is going on with the heart. That was awesome, Dan. And we have actually a formal echo happening very shortly. But while we wait for some more information, what are your thoughts about what could actually be going on? That's a great question. So chest pain and dyspnea are both great symptoms because they both have a broad differential diagnosis. But the fluctuating nature of her symptoms, I think, is a really important clue here. Most of the processes in that 4 plus 2 plus 2 paradigm confer constant, unremitting symptoms. The intermittent chest pain in association with transient and self-resolving hypotension with mitral regurgitation indicates a dynamic process. In all comers, coronary ischemia, which is a dynamic process in acute coronary syndromes, is probably the most common and the most important not to miss. But other things that come into mind that may cause demand ischemia and similar symptoms include catecholaminergic states. So think like cocaine, methamphetamine, pheochromocytoma, thyrotoxicosis, as well as other conditions like arrhythmia and dynamic intracardiac obstruction. Dan, give me a hand on this one. I'm totally with you there, bud. I'm especially interested in the possibility of dynamic obstruction given concurrent mitral regurgitation. Broadly speaking, there are several things that cause dynamic obstruction. On the right side of the heart, we have venous thromboembolism and pulmonary embolism. There can also be tumors that cause right ventricular obstruction. On the left side, you can have tumors as well, like atrial myxoma causing obstruction. 
However, dynamic obstruction makes me think about dynamic left ventricular outflow tract obstruction. This can occur in patients with smaller hearts, typical stress cardiomyopathy, and hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. I wonder if the systolic murmur heard is partially from possible turbulence through the left ventricular outflow tract, or the LVOT, and that mitral regurgitation is just associated with that LVOT obstruction. A formal echo will really be helpful in narrowing down this differential diagnosis. In fact, I'm so freaking anxious about what we're going to find that I'm going to call the echo lab right now. Do it! Ring, 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 ring. 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 Hello, echo reading room. Kareen speaking. Hey, Kareen. I'm on the line with Ahmed and Fatima, and we just had an echo performed on the patient in room one in the CCU. It's a fascinating case presentation with chest pain that has transient hypotension with oxygen desats that improved spontaneously. Can you take a look at the echo and see what's going on? Sure thing. Let me pull it up and go through it with you guys on the line. Not ideal for work efficiency, but cannot pass up an opportunity to hang out with my fellow cardio nerds. <laughs> Woo! Okay, I'm seeing a hyperdynamic LV, EF looks sev- about 75%, cavity looks small, and septum is uh, severely hypertrophied, coming in at 2.5 centimeters, but the posterior wall measures 1.1 centimeters, so very asymmetric. There's an impressive systolic anterior motion of the anterior mitral valve leaflet, causing severe MR. There was turbulent flow at the LVOT with an LVOT gradient of 70 millimeters of mercury at rest and 90 with Valsalva. Otherwise, looks like some mild aortic valve sclerosis, but no evidence of aortic stenosis. RV looks normal. Wow, thanks Green for such a rapid read. This really helps us understand what's going on. This echo is very consistent with the diagnosis of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, a very important and common genetic cardiac abnormality. Actually, the most common monogenic disorder within cardiology. This is a unifying diagnosis that really explains much of what's going on here and is a game changer in how we approach this patient's care going forward. Dan, I couldn't agree more. And Fatima, now I know you're in the middle of a busy CCU call, but this is such a great opportunity to review hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and help construct a rational treatment plan for your patient. No, guys, I'm actually in a great place and can't wait to hear more. That's awesome because hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is a very important topic for several reasons. One, it's very common, up to 1 in 200 regardless of the demographic. Two, while the general prognosis is very good, there is a possibility of sudden cardiac death in high-risk patients, so really we shouldn't miss it. And three, it's a board favorite because it spans so many fields. Think genetics, imaging, heart failure, EP, surgery, and interventional cardiology. So with that, Dan, let's get started. Ahmed, I love that you put number three as board favorite because that shows how (laughs) (laughs) our priorities are correct. (laughs) But yes, guys, listen up. This is a super high yield episode for y'all. All All right. With hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, it's worth spending time on the pathophysiology as it will pay buckets in dividends with regards to diagnosis and management of this condition. The left ventricular hypertrophy in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is associated with myofibrillar disarray and fibrosis and a degree of diastolic dysfunction. What makes this particular condition unique and very interesting to think about and talk about is the dynamic nature of the LVOT obstruction. To best understand this, let's recall the normal anatomy of the left heart. Agree. Always returning to the basic principles makes cardiac physiology and pathophysiology really click. Normally, as blood returns from the lungs, it courses through those pulmonary veins and enters a low-pressure left atrium. There, it pulls in the atrium during ventricular systole until the relatively large mitral valve orifice opens and blood fills the left ventricle during diastole. Under the pressures generated by ventricular contraction in systole, blood is ejected through the tubular left ventricular outflow tract, the hose, then out the aortic valve, the nozzle, out into the aorta. Now, it is really important to realize that even though the LVOT is smaller in diameter when compared to the mitral valve orifice, the mitral valve during systole is closed, and so the blood only has one choice for systolic ejection. The path of least resistance normally is through the LVOT and the open aortic valve. This normal anatomy is altered in the classic hypertrophic cardiomyopathy with asymmetric septal hypertrophy for two reasons. Number one, that big fat septum bulges into the LVOT and causes partial obstruction and therefore flow acceleration. Think just like crimping your hose. Number two, 
This fast flow sucks in the anterior mitral valve leaflet, which bulges towards the left ventricular outflow tract, further causing dynamic obstruction as well as mitral regurgitation as the mitral valve opens. It doesn't help that there are often abnormalities in the mitral valve structure, such as an elongated leaflet or papillary muscle abnormalities, which may further make the leaflet bulging even more likely. This is the systolic anterior motion, or SAM, that we look for on echo and Corrine found on our patient's echo. Now friends, we will include videos of SAM on MRI and echo on our website, www.cardionerds.com. Like in aortic stenosis, this is a setup for a gradient to develop across the left ventricle and aorta. In other words, septal hypertrophy and SAM are the structural problems that cause the hemodynamic consequences that we see in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Amit, I could not have described this anatomy better. You're like the audio version of Frank Netter, MD. <laughs> <laughs> Folks, this altered anatomy is a really big setup for some serious hemodynamic consequences that explains our patient's clinical condition. Imagine you're taking a ride as part of Miss Frizzle's Magic School the Bus. Magic School Bus. And we're bus. about to shrink down and take an awesome field trip into the heart of our patient. Side note, if you have never heard of the Magic School Bus, it's certainly worth a Google at some other time. At any rate, seatbelts, everyone. Beep, beep. Our bus starts in the RV and is propelled into the pulmonary arteries with no trouble. We sail right past the pulmonary veins and into the left atrium. We cross the mitral valve apparatus and head towards the apex of the left ventricle. We all get extremely stoked as systole begins to occur and we watch the left ventricular walls thicken and want to eject us outwards. But as we head for the left ventricular outflow tract, we begin freaking out as we see this bulging septum and part of the anterior mitral valve leaflet obstruct our way. We want to go forward, but the path forward is full of turbulence and high velocities. And our bus is set to path of least resistance chill mode. And instead of going out the LVOT into the aorta, we'd rather go back out that mitral valve, which because of abnormal anatomy and high left ventricular pressures is now wide open with torrential mitral regurgitation. We unfortunately bounce off the anterior mitral valve leaflet on our eccentric pathway and go basically towards the opposite side of the atrium. Then we're forced to take that easy road and go back into the lungs with all the blood that's ejected from the left ventricle during the cardiac cycle. It's no wonder why our patient is having shortness of breath with oxygen desaturations. Wow, Dan, that visualization is unreal, but so real at the same time. Allow me to complete that picture here. While our bus is going out that mitral valve, the rest of the blood flow is trying to make its way through that smaller, crimped LVOT. Because of the reduction in the LVOT area and the law of continuity, velocities through the LVOT increase dramatically. As we mentioned in the AS episode, we can use echo Doppler to clock this velocity and obtain the gradient. In our patient, we witnessed a whopping gradient of 70 millimeters of mercury at rest. Team, remember from aortic stenosis, a gradient of 70 millimeters of mercury means that the ventricle needs to pump up a pressure of 170 millimeters of mercury just to get the aortic pressure to be 100 millimeters of mercury. That's insane. Yeah, it's always crazy to think about that. Now imagine how this all affects the heart muscle. The LV is working super hard to push at least some blood out the right way. Meanwhile, less blood is actually going out into the aorta and into the coronary blood vessels and the rest of the body. Plus, the thick myocardium itself is making it hard for those tiny coronary arteries to fill in the first place. Stepping back, remember that the driving force for coronary perfusion is a diastolic blood pressure minus the LVEDP. The LVOT obstruction in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy causes low diastolic blood pressure and high LVEDP, and therefore the coronary perfusion plummets. That poor myocardium is working super hard but getting less and less blood. The supply-demand mismatch is bound to cause ischemia, explaining her dynamic chest pain. And the ischemia further impedes ventricular relaxation, which is an active process, worsening the LVEDP and thereby also contributing to dyspnea. That poor ventricle, it's such a vicious cycle. That's right. In addition to dynamic LVOT obstruction and systolic anterior motion of the mitral valve, there is a higher likelihood of both supraventricular and ventricular arrhythmias and abnormal autonomic reactivity that can all reduce forward flow, causing transient cerebral hypoperfusion, all of which ultimately leads to syncope, another classic symptom of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Understanding the pathophysiology, as I said before, uh, really allows us to summarize the symptomatic manifestations of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, dyspnea, angina, and syncope. And each of these symptoms can be 
present with dynamic fluctuations, which really makes sense within the context of underlying hypertrophic cardiomyopathy pathophysiology. It seems simple enough, but because of the day-to-day variability in symptom severity that occurs with patients with HCM, this condition can be often under-recognized, resulting in delayed diagnosis. Ahmed and Dan, that was so extremely helpful, and this is starting to sound very intuitive. So we have a structural problem of a thickened LV septum and an abnormal mitral valve. The hemodynamic consequence is the dynamic obstruction, which decreases stroke volume and increases LVEDP. The patient is left with dynamic symptoms of dyspnea, angina, and syncope. Oh my God, terrific. Okay, I can't believe you just summarized everything we just said in one paragraph, and it was just so beautiful. Let's take it a little further. (laughs) We can get a little bit more granular with regards to the dynamic nature of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. To do this, we should contrast HCM with aortic stenosis. In aortic stenosis, as you can recall from episode one, there is a fixed obstruction due to a heavily calcified aortic valve. In severe aortic stenosis, during systole, the aortic valve pops open to an orifice area of less than one centimeter squared. This remains the case throughout ventricular systole. This orifice area will not change based on the patient's volume status or level of contractility in most situations. Okay, so someone with severe IS will continue to have severe IS until the valve is fixed. This is very different in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, where the degree of obstruction depends on so many factors, including volume status, autonomic nervous activity, pharmacotherapy, exercise, and even physical position. That's exactly right. To hammer this point in, let's imagine we're observing a hypothetical hypertrophic cardiomyopathy patient who just graduated from college and is about to take down the night. (laughs) Okay? He's pre-gaming so hard with his favorite brew and becomes incredibly hydrated and expands his volume status. His LV at end diastole will be relatively full. The extra volume will displace that LV septum away from the mitral valve apparatus, decreasing the obstruction. As the night moves on and the fellow is in and out of the bathroom all night and becomes relatively dehydrated at closing time, well, the heart is now on the empty side, and that LVOT is feeling a lot more crowded with that septal bulge leading to more obstruction. He is now more likely to become symptomatic. So the same patient with the same anatomy is going to have higher gradients in a dehydrated state. Similarly, states of higher contractility where the ventricle is just banging away at full throttle, that annoying huge septum is just going to keep bulging right into the LVOT, causing more and more obstruction, leading to higher gradients. We can even take this one step further and think about one cardiac cycle. In fact, let's just focus on systole. The mitral valve closes, the LV begins to squeeze. At this point, it is as full as it's going to be, and the obstruction is the least. Now, pressures begin to rise during isovolemic contraction, and the aortic valve opens like a champ. Blood ejects, and the LV volume starts to drop. And Fatima, when the LV volume drops... The LVOT obstruction increases. Turn straight, it does. Nice. That means <laughs> that means as systole progresses, the degree of obstruction increases. Sometimes this obstruction can be so severe that the flow can cease prior to the end of systole, and the aortic valve actually closes prematurely. This has lots of neat and nerdy echo findings associated with it, but we'll pause this concept here for the sake of time. Suffice to say that this is what we mean to say when we say dynamic obstruction. Dynamic indeed. Now those echo pearls are very high yield and worth reviewing later, but since Fatima is a mid-call, we'll save that for another time. However, we should bring up some classic physical exam findings that highlight HCM pathophysiology. Fatima, given our previous discussion, can you imagine what would happen to her murmur with Valsalva or with going from a supine to a standing position? Well, both those maneuvers would decrease preload. If there's less LV filling, the ventricle would be smaller at the end of diastole. And this would make the LVOT obstruction even worse and accentuate the murmur. Exactly. Now, in contrast, in a patient with fixed obstruction due to, say, aortic stenosis, the murmur would decrease in intensity due to the reduced flow associated with reduced preload. Okay, so this is coming together. 
Our patient came in with a viral illness and was probably relatively dehydrated. With her being volumed down, the degree of obstruction was worse than her baseline, leading to transient hypotension and worsening supply-demand mismatch, as well as SAM with mitral regurgitation, causing the chest pain and dyspnea that improved with changes of her position. I'm thinking she'd probably benefit from some fluids and slowing down her heart rate because that would increase diastolic filling time and reduce the obstruction. Boom! <laughs> Fatima, that was spoken like a true cardio nerd. Welcome to the club. Ooh. Now that we've made sense of the pathophysiologic underpinnings of both symptoms and physical exam, let's also think through the diagnosis and management. Stepping back, we said that HCM is a heritable disease. It's caused by mutations involving genes encoding proteins related to the cardiac sarcomere. But the pathogenic mutations can occur de novo, causing disease in patients with zero nada family history. Also, we probably have not identified all pathogenic mutations, and there are plenty of mutations of undetermined significance. Since the genotype-phenotype correlation isn't crystal, HCM remains a clinical diagnosis. That's right, Amit. Clinical diagnosis indeed. In fact, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is a diagnosis of exclusion, and there is no test that can definitively confirm it. Even if the patients harbor some genetic variant, the clinical presentation can differ widely due to incomplete penetrance and variable expressivity. I find it helpful to create a differential diagnosis around LVH, or left ventricular hypertrophy, and break it down into two groups. Group one is anything that causes the ventricle to beef up its muscle like a gym rat on steroids. This would include systemic hypertension and aortic stenosis, whether it is valvular, subvalvular, or supravalvular. Group two are situations where the LV is thick, but not because of adaptive changes, but rather due to infiltrative cardiomyopathies. This would include amyloidosis, hashtag nasty protein, Fabre's <laughs> disease, lysosomal storage disease, such as Danon disease, and glycogen storage disorders, such as Pompe's disease, and hemochromatosis. I vividly remember the first clinic patient I saw as a wee cardio nerd that was referred for LVH with asymmetric thickening of the septum. And though I knew it looked like HCM, it was hard for me to label my patient with such a big diagnosis. It was not really intuitive to me at the time that this is exactly how you make the diagnosis. Thank goodness for clinical preceptors. Turns out that in order to make the diagnosis of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, you need <clears throat> one, a wall thickness usually greater than 15 millimeters by echo, CT, or MRI, and two, the absence of a secondary cause of LVH. That's literally all you need. Here is what you do not need to make the diagnosis of HCM, genetic testing or fibrosis on MRI. Now, the classic HCM has asymmetric septal hypertrophy. However, hypertrophy can be anywhere in the heart, the septum, the apical wall, or even the lateral walls. It can even be diffusely concentric. It can really be everywhere. That's absolutely right. A thick walled ventricle plus no secondary cause equals HCM. Simple formula. The challenge is that HCM can often coexist with other causes of hypertrophy, but the nuanced key is hypertrophy out of proportion to, say, the degree of hypertension. Another challenge we come across is distinguishing hypertrophic cardiomyopathy from athlete's heart because both can come with hypertrophy. But generally, the athlete's heart does not get LVH beyond 12 millimeters. Also, the athlete's heart will usually be more dilated, but reverse remodels with periods of rest, and shouldn't have scar on cardiac MRI. On the other hand, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy hearts are more likely to have unusual hypertrophy distribution, bizarre EKG patterns, and diastolic dysfunction. Much of the evaluation of HCM involves ruling out secondary causes of hypertrophy. First, a comprehensive metabolic panel is helpful as we think about other causes of LVH. In fact, one of my clinical mentors, Jose Madrazo, recently was referred a patient with HCM for evaluation, but he noted renal dysfunction. Ultimately, this patient was diagnosed with Fabre's disease. Next, the EKG. More than 90% of HCM patients have ECG abnormalities that include LVH, repolarization changes, such as T-wave inversions and horizontal downsloping ST segments. Apical HCM, mainly seen in Asian populations, classically presents with giant T-wave inversions that are over 10 millimeters in the anterior lateral leads. You can most prominently see them in V4, V5, and V6. And team, as our case highlights, transthoracic echo continues to be a mainstay of cardiac imaging in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy for a few important reasons. 
Number one, it helps us demonstrate severity and distribution of the hypertrophy and allows us to measure septal thickness. This actually has a prognostic ramification in our assessment of risk for sudden cardiac death. For example, a cutoff of 30 millimeters is considered massive hypertrophy and pretends an increased risk for sudden cardiac death. Secondly, beyond LVH, echo can help characterize a mitral valve and subvalvular apparatus and mitral hemodynamics. A TEE can be especially helpful for this if surface sonographic views are limited. Thirdly, echo also helps assess the presence or absence of SAM, which produces the classic eccentric posteriorly directed jet of mitral regurgitation. In fact, here's a pro tip. When the MRI jet is not eccentric, you got to think about other mechanisms of regurgitation. This is very important, especially when we consider operative management for symptomatic hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. For apical HCM, be sure to look for an apical aneurysm, which can harbor a clot and be a substrate for ventricular arrhythmia. So echo contrast can be very helpful here. Also, a value for pulmonary hypertension, which is an upstream consequence of the LVOT obstruction, microregurgitation, and diastolic dysfunction of HCM. All the factors that push that magic school bus back into that LA. Finally, strain imaging is an echo technique that looks at how speckles within the myocardia move with respect to one another. It's actually very sensitive in defining regional myocardial function. The different strain patterns can help distinguish HCM from its mimics as different cardiomyopathies tend to have different strain patterns. Besides for the anatomical assessments we do on TTE, we can also learn a ton about hemodynamic consequences of the anatomical abnormalities. Using Doppler technology, we can pinpoint the location of obstruction in the LVOT by identifying the LVOT gradients at different areas within the left ventricle. In general, a gradient of 30 millimeters of mercury is what constitutes the presence of obstruction, but severe obstruction, things that make us kind of worry about what's going on in the left ventricle is 50 millimeters of mercury, using that as a cutoff for most decision-making algorithms. Again, if you are feeling fuzzy about gradients, check out our aortic stenosis episode where we get more into the physiology of how gradients develop. But what do you do when your patient doesn't have obstructive physiology at rest, but are complaining of exertional symptoms? To better get at this, we could do maneuvers that promote gradients that we can clock on echo and make the diagnosis for our patient. First, we can have the patient Valsalva. Remember that in Valsalva, you increase intrathoracic pressure during that stained bearing down like a bowel movement. Mm. Oh my God, I did, <laughs> I'm not sure I needed that <laughs> audiovisual effect, but thank you. Okay, we'll take it out. <laughs> take it out. <laughs> I thought it was helpful. How about this? Guys, I'm not going to do a Valsalva in front of you all <laughs> because that's a work hazard. But the increased <laughs> intrathoracic pressure of sustained Valsalva decreases venous preload into the heart. So the heart basically ends up with a temporary volume depleted state, which will create an, more of an obstruction as we kind of talked about a lot earlier on. If we clock an LVOT gradient over 50 millimeters of mercury, we are done. But if we don't, we have other moves like amyl nitrite, which is a venodilator, again, sucking away the blood from the heart. Uh, exercise stress testing, which basically makes more contractility. And ultimately, we can hit up our interventional colleagues and measure the gradients directly by pigtail catheters. And stress testing, besides for bringing out LVOT gradients, has particular utility in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Normally, systolic blood pressure increases by at least 20 millimeters of mercury with exercise. However, a quarter of HCM patients have either a blunted response, which is a failure of the systolic blood pressure to increase to that degree, or a hypotensive response, which is a drop in blood pressure. This predicts a higher risk of sudden cardiac death. Exercise testing is also a very good way to assess whether a patient's clinical symptoms are truly related to hemodynamic changes due to the hypertrophied ventricle, or whether alternative mechanisms should be explored. Of all the provocative maneuvers that Dan went over, treadmill exercise is the most physiologic, so it's a great one to have in your back pocket. Fatima, I promise we're getting close to management, but we cannot go on further without giving a shout out to my imaging people at Cardiac MRI or CMR, a very important imaging modality in HCM. To me, there is nothing more beautiful than seeing the heart beating on cardiac MRI. For HCM, CMR comes in the clutch for two major reasons. One, it allows for terrific visualization of the anatomy. Really beautiful to see the heart beating. It's crazy. It's almost... It's unreal. Uh, every time it really gets me. Dan, I feel like I should leave you and the CMR alone for a few moments. 
<laughs> oh my god, I just love it. Um, <laughs> anyways, but like I said, it really, really gives you great visualization of the anatomy that may be obscured sometimes by echo. Another huge thing we get from CMR is tissue characterization because we can exclude HCM mimickers such as cardiac amyloidosis and hemochromatosis. LGE or late gadolinium enhancement is a technique that helps demonstrate the presence of myocardial fibrosis. Extensive LGE pertends to an adverse prognosis in HCM. A public service announcement, gadolinium-based contrast necessary for LGE is rarely associated with nephrogenic systemic fibrosis in patients with renal disease, and so caution must be exercised in this patient population. Thankfully, the newer agents decrease the risk of this terrible outcome. All right, all right. After those extremely thorough explanations, HCM is turning out to be not quite as intimidating as I thought. We make the diagnosis when there's LVH without a secondary cause, got the physical exam moves down, get a BMP to help rule out secondary causes of LVH and check renal function, EKG can show LVH and associated changes, TTE to define LVH and related gradients, CMR for further anatomical and tissue definition. You know, I might just splice out everything me and Dan said and just leave this last part. <laughs> you're doing this post-CCU call. That is insane. <laughs> Not bad at all for a nearly post-call CCU resident. Now that we've kind of understood the pathophysiology and diagnosis of HCM, we're now ready to conquer the management. Thankfully, the prognosis for patients with HCM is generally quite good, so much of our efforts are focused on P for prevention. Therefore, when managing patients with HCM, always address the four P's of HCM. Number one, prevent symptoms. Number two, prevent strokes. Number three, prevent sudden cardiac death in the patient. And finally, number four, prevent sudden cardiac death in their relatives. Nice. I like that. Prevent symptoms, strokes, sudden cardiac death in the patient, and sudden cardiac death in family members. Sounds simple enough. All right, guys. The first prevention is prevention of symptoms. Naturally, this is very important for our patients. No one wants to feel unwell. As we hammered home a million times, many symptoms of HCM are due to LVOT obstruction that causes shortness of breath, chest pain, and obstructive causes of syncope. However, before we jump into medications and procedures, patient education, as always, is critical. Current ACC slash AHA guidelines recommend low-intensity aerobic activities to achieve and maintain cardiovascular fitness. Aerobic exercise is preferable to isometric exercises such as weightlifting, which may prompt the Valsalva maneuver with uh, worsening LVOT obstruction, leading to syncope. Beyond intense exercise, avoidance of excessive alcohols like our college graduate or stimulant consumption, dehydration, and temperature extremes such as saunas or hot tubs are recommended. Remember, our poor college grad did not end his night well for multiple reasons. Asymptomatic HCM can usually be managed with lifestyle modifications alone. However, patients with symptoms can get great benefit from pharmacotherapies which aim at reducing the LVOT obstruction. Before we dive into meds that can help, Fatima, can you think of any meds that we should avoid? Hmm, yeah. I think that we should avoid diuretics and any agents that increase contractility. That's quite right. In general, diuretics and vasodilators can increase the obstructive gradients by reducing intracardiac volume and reducing systemic vascular resistance. Digitalis, aka digoxin, increases contractility that can worsen the obstruction. Beta blockers are what you want for this situation. I know a guy from my neighborhood who was not showing up to the park, and I asked him where he was, and he told me that he had been experiencing profound uh, shortness of breath and really just feeling really pretty bummy and staying at home. When he went to his PCP who heard a murmur, ultimately diagnosed with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, got started on a little bit of beta blocker, and he all of a sudden felt like he had a new life. It was one of the things that actually made me interested in going into cardiology in the first place. Yeah. So beta blockers really comes with this negative inotropy and negative chronotropy by increasing filling time and lowering contractility that reduces the dynamic LVOT obstruction. Non-dehydropyridinine calcium receptor antagonists are an alternate to beta blocker antagonists if there are unacceptable side effects with beta blockers or if you have inadequate symptom relief. Just remember, guys, that when you combine those two classes, calcium channel blockers and beta blockers, you have to be really careful because you can induce high-grade AV block or sinus node dysfunction. Now, another medicine that I personally haven't used that much is disopyramide, a class 1A antiarrhythmic with negative inotropic effects. 
that can be used alone or in conjunction with the other therapies that we just talked about. Now, don't try disopyramide at home alone for the first time because you really want to watch that patient in-house in the hospital to monitor for pro-arrhythmic effects such as prolonged QTC. Other side effects of disopyramide are anticholinergic effects such as dry eyes and mouth and urinary retention and drowsiness. So you kind of want to make sure they're doing okay on this medication before you let them loose. That was a great review of the chronic medical management of obstructive HCM. But the same pharmacologic concepts also extend to critically ill patients in the ICU. One of my most dramatic cases as a junior cardio nerd was a patient with baseline non-obstructive HCM. She had presented with acute stress cardiomyopathy with shock. Since her apex was not working, aka ballooning, the base of the heart had been working even harder. This, in combination with that adrenergic surge inherent to this condition, created a massive dynamic LVOT obstruction with a huge gradient above 100 millimeters of mercury at rest. She was transferred to us on multiple pressors, including norepinephrine and dopamine. Wait, wouldn't the positive inotropy and chronotropy be detrimental for her with an LVOT gradient? That's exactly right. So we actually transitioned her from norepinephrine and dopamine to phenylephrine, an alpha agonist and so pure vasoconstrictor, after additionally giving her fluids and actually also giving her IV metoprolol to address the LVOT obstruction, she came off all vasoactive infusions within two hours. The main takeaway for us was to avoid inotropic agents for shock when there is dynamic LVOT obstruction. Phenylephrine here is a presser of choice. Wow, physiology to the rescue. This is legitimately why I went into this field in the first place. But back to stable patients, what if they still have symptomatic LVOT obstruction despite medical optimization? Right now we have two options. One, surgical septal myectomy. Folks, not myomectomy, it's not a uterus thing. Two is catheter-based alcohol septal ablation. Now, septal myectomy is the most established invasive therapy for HCM. Pioneered in the 1950s, myectomy results in long-term symptomatic benefit and is the gold standard for septal reduction therapy, hashtag SRT, according to the ACC slash AHA guidelines, whereas the European guidelines provide equivalent recommendations to alcohol septal ablation. Alcohol septal ablation is a newer technique than myectomy, first performed in 1994 with favorable intermediate-term prognosis. How can you inject alcohol into the myocardium, and how do we avoid damaging the rest of the heart? Great question. Obviously, adding alcohol to the myocardium willy-nilly is probably not a good idea. But remember, the left anterior descending artery gives off septal perforating arteries. If we can get a wire into the right septal perforator, we can nail that pesky septal bulge. We can use angiographic guidance to get our wire into the right septal perforator and echocardiographic intracoronary dye injections that light up the septum on echo prior to injecting the alcohol. This allows us to infuse alcohol into the right septal perforator that brings blood to the area that we want to target for alcohol septal ablation. In reality, the decision between surgical myectomy and alcohol septal ablation may not be straightforward. If the patient is a surgical candidate, surgical myectomy is generally preferred. This is especially true if there are other things to fix, like valvular heart disease, or if the LVOT obstruction is complex with multiple levels of obstruction, including that due to abnormal papillary muscles. Myectomy consistently results in more gradient reduction than alcohol septal ablation and is usually more effective in younger patients with higher resting gradients and those with greater septal thickness. But if the patient is not a surgical candidate, and continues to be symptomatic with residual obstruction despite maximally tolerated medical therapy, then it's alcohol septal ablation to the rescue. Their candidacy will partly depend on their septal perforator anatomy and presence of coronary artery disease. Regardless, the decision is complex and should involve multidisciplinary heart team and shared decision-making with that patient. Board Pearl. If you surgically shave off the left side of that septum, you end up with a left bundle branch block. But if you inject alcohol into a septal perforator, which perforates into that septum, you cut off supply to the other side and get rid of the right bundle, ending up with a right bundle branch block. Now, Fatima, what would happen if you plan an alcohol septal ablation in a patient with a baseline left bundle branch block? Well, if the left bundle is already down and you ablate the right bundle, you'd get complete heart block. Exactly. So the risk of needing a permanent pacemaker would be predictably very high. Super random fun fact. An anterior STEMI with a new right bundle branch block on ECG can be localized to the proximal left anterior descending artery. 
This totally makes sense with what we've said. As a proximal STEMI means that the first septal perforator is now not going to have perfusion. That first septal perforator is what perfuses that right bundle, and you'll end up with a right bundle branch block. So again, a new right bundle branch block and an anterior STEMI makes you very concerned for a proximal LAD occlusion. Pretty neat, Dan. I do remember you talking about this at the bedside once when we talked about STEMI localization. Very helpful. Oh, thanks. I'm glad you remembered. <laughs> so touched. Now, this all covers the symptomatic obstructive hypertrophic cardiomyopathy patient. However, patients with non-obstructive HCM can also have symptoms, usually from diastolic dysfunction. However, a proportion of HCM patients will develop a reduction in ejection fraction, which is a marker of end-stage burnt-out disease refractory to guideline-directed medical therapy. And that is very, very hard to treat medically. Depending on their circumstances, they should be considered for cardiac transplant. I was recently privileged with being on our cardiomyopathy service and watching a patient come in without any energy whatsoever and refractory volume overload to bucket loads of diuretics and end up getting a cardiac transplant and completely living a new life now. Wow, Dan, that must have been so rewarding to see. Let's keep on going with that management train. So the first P was prevention of symptoms. The second P is prevention of embolism and stroke. For a variety of reasons, atrial tachyarrhythmias are very common in HCM patients. When there is concurrent atrial fibrillation or flutter, the risk of systemic thromboembolism is astronomical, regardless of the CHADS VAS score. Therefore, any patient with HCM and AFib or flutter should be on anticoagulation regardless of conventional risk stratification. Okay, so the first P is for prevention of symptoms. The second P is to prevent embolism. The third P is to prevent sudden cardiac death in your patient. Honestly, the big elephant in the room with regards to HCM is the concern for sudden cardiac death. I mean, when this occurs, it truly is a tremendous tragedy. Now, this is relatively infrequent in HCM, about 1% per year, but it can be really devastating when this occurs. Sudden cardiac death results from ventricular arrhythmias caused by autonomic overreactivity secondary to that LVOT obstruction, microvascular ischemia, myocardial fibrosis, and myocyte disarray. The greatest risk factor for sudden cardiac death is a personal history of cardiac death, ventricular fibrillation, or sustained VT. An ICD for secondary prophylaxis here is a no-brainer, and it carries a class 1 indication based on the ACC, AHA, and ESC guidelines, unless goals of care dictate differently. Risk stratification for primary prevention is more complex, and there's some variability between the guidelines. If a patient has a family history of sudden cardiac death, personal history of unexplained syncope, or massive LV wall thickness, like 30 millimeters of mercury, they are at a particularly high risk for sudden cardiac death and have a class 2A recommendation for ICD. If they have non-sustained ventricular tachycardia or an abnormal blood pressure response to exercise, they probably are at higher risk, but the benefit from an ICD is not totally clear. By themselves, NSVT or abnormal blood pressure response carries a class 2B recommendation, which means you can go ahead if it's the right clinical situation. But if there are also risk modifiers, then it's back to class 2A, which means you probably should do it. There are several recognized risk modifiers that factor into ICD equation, then we have embedded them into the schematic for the episode. In fact, we've kind of summarized the recommendations for ICDs in our schematic as well. So take a look at that at www.cardionerds.com. So clearly, sudden cardiac death risk stratification can be quite tricky. And here's a mind twister. A tiny majority of ACM patients are deemed to be super high risk for sudden cardiac death. Conversely, the overwhelming majority are at a very low risk but just by the magic of numbers, the majority of patients that actually have sudden cardiac death will not fall into the high-risk category. Hopefully, we will get closer to bridging this gap as risk prediction models get more accurate. Totally agree with you there, Amit. Different risk prediction models have different strengths. The European HCM Risk SCD calculator incorporates age, extent of LVH, left atrial size, LVOT obstruction, family history of SCD, non-sustained ventricular tachycardia, and unexplained syncope to predict five-year sudden cardiac death risk. While the data is mixed, it does give you a risk percentage that can be handy to have an informed discussion with your patient for shared decision-making. All right, so the first P is to prevent symptoms. The second P is to prevent embolism and stroke. The third P is to prevent sudden cardiac death in the patient. The fourth P is sometimes forgotten, but is so very important to prevent sudden cardiac death in the family. 
Since HCM is an autosomal dominant trait, screening for HCM is recommended in all first-degree relatives of an infected patient. There are two options here. If, and only if, the causative genetic mutation is known within your patient, then you can just screen relatives for the specific gene. This is why genetic counseling and then testing can be very helpful in your patient. However, if the mutation is unknown, either due to lack of testing or unrevealing results, then the relatives must be screened clinically with serial echocardiograms. Screening starts in adolescence or when considering competitive sports. Pediatric patients get screening every 12 to 18 months, really annually to make it simple, and adults every five years. Based on our plan, which we came up with thanks to your awesome advice, our patient was placed on an esmolol drip and was treated with gentle hydration. She was eventually transitioned to oral metoprolol. A repeat TTE showed remarkable reduction in mitral regurgitation to only mild. The LVOT gradients at this time were still 60 millimeters of mercury at rest and 90 millimeters of mercury with Valsalva maneuver. She's feeling absolutely wonderful, and so we will be discharging her soon with great follow-up for HCM, and her family is now plugged in for the appropriate screening. Wow, Fatima, that was awesome work. I'm so glad that she responded so well to your management. After our discussion, it totally makes sense that she did well with the hydration and beta blockers. Hopefully, she can get those gradients under control as an outpatient as well. Totally. It all makes so much sense now. I think I can boil down what we learned today into four key points of maximal impulse. With HCM, we focus on the four preventions. Prevent symptoms by reducing the LVOT obstruction. Avoid dehydration and positive inotropes. Do give negative inotropes like beta blockers, calcium channel blockers, and disopyramide. Phenylephrine is the vasopressor of choice in shock. If the patient has symptomatic obstruction despite maximally tolerated medical therapy, they can be considered for either a surgical myectomy or an interventional alcohol septal ablation. Two, prevent stroke or other thromboembolism. Simply, if they have atrial fibrillation or flutter, they get anticoagulation regardless of the CHADS VASC score. Three, prevent sudden cardiac death in the patient with an ICD using risk stratification and shared decision making. And finally, four, prevent sudden cardiac death in the family with genetic and or clinical screening in relatives. Wow, guys, thank you so much. I feel so prepared to take care of my next patient with HCM, and I could not be more appreciative. Fatima, this was an amazing chill. Thank you so much. I just have to say I've been on the call this whole time because you guys forgot to disconnect, but that was a fascinating case, and I really learned so much about HCM. In the interest of promoting an attitude of gratitude, we'd like to close every episode with a new segment by hearing from our fellow cardio nerds as they provide an anecdote of a success they had this week. Let's hear what's making our cardio nerds' hearts flutter. Hey, cardio nerds. My name is Virginia from Hopkins, and what made my heart flutter this week was getting to Famidus for free for one of my patients with ATTR cardiomyopathy. This is a patient who I started following about three years ago um, and saw, took care of him through the time when Tifamidus was shown to be effective for cardiac amyloid and then was FDA approved. And with the help of Pfizer, we got him this drug for free. Thanks so much. I love the show. Ring, ring. Um, you're supposed to do it so we're on sync, and then you'll take the, the last three. You ready? Ring, 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 ring. Okay. Ring, ring. Sounds terrible. <laughs> no, it's not. All right, we can always use it. For a while. <laughs>